So many years ago, when I was six or seven years old, uh, I, I remember I, re I learned this really great skill of submitting to authority. Now, the authority at this time in my life was my dad. And just to give you a quick story, I, I, the church that we grew up in, again, I was, I was young, six or seven years old. Oftentimes, I would use that church as my own personal jungle gym, as my own personal playground. So I remember running in and out of the church pews in the church. I would army crawl underneath the church pews. Uh, I would, there, were, there were actually two sets of stairs going from the foyer of the entry of the church into the main sanctuary. I would jump off from the top step down into the entryway with people around. You know, it was, it was pretty dangerous. And that, just so you know, that was a big no-no for my mom and dad. You did not run, misbehave at all in church ever. And so uh, I'm the oldest of three. I have two younger sisters. And the three Damas kids, you are expected to behave or suffer the consequences. Well, it was this particular time after one of our business meetings at church. We would always have um, very long business meetings at, uh, on a Saturday night at our church. It would be very similar to our congregational meetings, yet really, really long. We'd have a church service and then some business meeting to follow. So a six or seven-year-old boy is pretty antsy after one of those meetings. And I remember flying out after being dismissed, going outside. And in front of the church, we had some concrete steps with two metal handrails on either side of the steps. Oftentimes, that would be my tra trapeze bar. So I would be hanging on it upside down, standing on it, trying to tightrope across it, uh, whatever. I, I would find myself playing on those uh, handrails, knowing full well that it was wrong because I had been warned many times before, Isaiah, stay off the handrails. Well, I wasn't smart enough to, to, to think that I would be busted doing this, and I wasn't smart enough to tell my two younger sisters, hey, keep a lookout. If you see dad come and let me know. I wasn't smart enough to do that. Well, here I am minding my own business, and then here comes my dad out of the steps of the church, and he sees his seven-year-old son playing on his trapeze bars, right? And so my dad lovingly and gently picks me up off of the handrails and said, Isaiah, we got to go to the side of the church. Now, growing up, if you went to the side of the church, it got real. Like, that's where the bad kids went to get punished. And so he said, hey, we're going to go to the side of the church. He said, Isaiah, I told you that I didn't want you playing on the handrails. Then he says, Isaiah, here's why I don't want you playing. Number one, you could get hurt, right? You could fall off. You could fall on your head. It could be, it could be tragic for you. I, I want you to be safe. He said, but more importantly than that, I want everyone else to stay safe, right? He's like, your grandmother could be walking by, and you could fall over and knock her down, and she would break an arm. And he just went on and on about all these people that could get hurt because of me playing on these handrails. And he said, Isaiah, I don't want you to do that. He said, so because of your disobedience, you're going to have to be disciplined when we get home. And just so you know, my dad was a man of his word. I was disciplined when I got home. But there, there are two very important lessons that I learned from that night, although I didn't learn them perfectly that night, that I think have served me well over the years. The first, uh, the first thing that I learned that night was, hey, submission to authority, that's a pretty important thing. It's a really, really important thing. When I think about some of the leaders and some of the people that God has placed in my life, it has been for my good and for my development, as painful as that has been at different times, it has always been for my good. Submission to authority is a really, really good thing. The second thing that I learned is life is better when I walk in obedience, right? When I'm walking in obedience, life is better because I don't have to stress out about being found out. 
I don't have to stress out about being caught if I'm going to get in trouble. I don't have to worry about that. Peace follows obedience. I learned that that night as a seven-year-old boy. And so we think about what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. In a lot of ways, he's kind of communicating the same thing. When he said, and he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When, when Jesus is talking about that, in a lot of ways, he's saying, hey, submission to authority is a good thing, and peace follows obedience. And what a powerful call from Christ to his disciples. What a powerful, powerful call. And this was such an intense statement that the disciples listening to this, no doubt it would have stopped them in their tracks. Because when Jesus is talking about the cross here, it's not like you and I think about the cross today. Uh, Of course, we know the cross is where Jesus died for the sins of the world, paying the atonement for mankind, all that would believe in him. We know that's what happened. And I think even to some extent, we understand the brutality that the cross represents. I think we get a grasp of that. But we don't see the cross or view the cross the same way that first century disciples did. We just don't see it the same way. We just don't look at it with the same perspective. See, the cross in this season of history was part of the dark side of the Roman Empire. And it was a place where prisoners would go and die in front of large crowds and was intended for those who opposed the authority of Caesar. For anyone who challenged the imperium's status quo, your future was a cross. That is what was going to happen. And it humiliated anyone that was hanging on it. It took away any shred of human dignity you may have had left. And it was intended to strike fear in anyone who would witness a crucifixion. It was the most brutal way to die, not just because the type of death, but also because of the psychological torture and humiliation that one would endure while on a cross. And it would ultimately end in suffocation as you can no longer reposition yourself on a cross to inhale and exhale because they would break your kneecaps to where you couldn't do that. It was a brutal, brutal way to die. So for a minute, let's put ourselves in the position of the disciples and you hear Jesus say, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. Again, knowing what you know about the crucifixion, probably having witnessed and seen a few of these along the way. He says, hey, I want you to come after me by picking up your cross. Why would Jesus use such language? Why would Jesus choose to say something like that? See, in short, I think Jesus wanted them to know that if you follow me, you're also going to follow me in my sufferings. So when Jesus was inviting them to take up their cross and come and follow him, this was an invitation to come and die. That's what Jesus was inviting them to do, come and die. Die to your desires, die to your sin, die to your life, and ultimately live for the glory of the Lord. That's what Jesus was calling them to. So let's just hop back up for a minute verses 18 through 22, and let's see how Jesus gets to this point and paint a little context here. You know, let's just see what what Jesus is saying in the midst of a greater conversation to see why Jesus is saying what he is saying. So we read this in verses 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? 
And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, the one of the prophets of old that has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. What a great statement. But listen to what Jesus says. Strictly he charged and commanded them, tell this to no one saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What a powerful statement. What a a wonderful thing that Jesus does by asking him these questions. But what I love about this is as Jesus asks this question and they begin to give their responses, we kind of get in to see the, the average Joes of Scripture, just the common every man, just your you know, you're the original Isaiah Damases of the world, right? Like this is what Isaiah Damas would have said if he was living at that time. Who do the crowds say that I am? Well, Jesus, some say you're John the Baptist. You know, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet who's dead that has been risen again. So at the very least, we can see that the common average Joe of, uh, of this part of, of history really thought Jesus was kind of a good guy. Right, the prophets are good. John the Baptist did a lot of good things. His teaching was powerful. Like, you're you're a really good guy. That's who the crowds are saying Jesus is. We can also see that they believe that there was some kind of supernatural flair to Jesus as well. Right, he he might be a prophet that's come back to life. So there's some supernatural ability that Jesus has as well. He's a great teacher, charismatic, draws large crowds, and he's supernatural as well. Like people were saying this about. Jesus, they knew there was something special about Christ, but they never addressed him as Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior of, well, that never was uttered. And then Jesus takes this a bit farther than he directly looks into the eyes of his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Who, who do you say that I am? This is when Peter, as was common for, for Peter's personality, to speak up right away and confess, you are the Christ of God. He was saying, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are our long-waited Messiah, the deliverer, the one that would come and usher in the God-given hope of salvation. You are our deliverer. The confession was not that of a prophet. It was of Messiah. You know, the 21st century is not that much unlike the first century in that people have a, an, an idea of who Jesus is, right? So the, the Barnard Research Group actually did a survey of uh, American adults, and they discovered that 92% of all American adults, so male, female, elders, boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, 92% all believe that Jesus was a real person. 56% of all American adults believe that Jesus was God, so somewhere around the halfway mark. 26% that say that Jesus was just a really great religious teacher who, who, whose teachings have transformed our world, while 18% say they're, just, they're not sure. And then 46% of all American adults disagree on some level as to whether Jesus was sinless or not. So, so while there is no argument among the populace in the 21st century that Jesus was a real historical figure, there is a lot of disagreement as to whether Jesus is the Son of God that came in the flesh to die, to die for the sins of man. This is who the crowds are saying Jesus is in the 21st century. We're not sure. Great teacher, super cool guy, teaching has changed the world. Is he God? Not sure. Did he die for the sins of man? I'm 
not sure. This is who the crowds are saying Jesus is right now. But how about on a personal level? I think that question still applies to us today. Who do you, who do I say Jesus is? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And I think there's a question that we must give an answer to. We must have an answer to that question. Will we echo the voice of Peter or will we echo the voice of the populace? Will we say you are the Messiah or will we say I'm just, I'm not quite sure. You're a historical guy who did some cool things. Who do you say that I am? So in 1994, I had a great opportunity. So I'm, I'm nine years old this time. I had a great opportunity to leave my small hometown in Francisville, Indiana, to go to Indianapolis for a week of spring break and spend with my Uncle Ken. Now, my Uncle Ken was a dynamite guy, well-connected, great at networking, had a ton of friends. And he picked us up, me and my cousin, he picked us up and said, hey, let's go spend the week in Indianapolis. And on the way down, it was about a two-hour drive south, he said, hey, there's this really cool guy that I'm excited to, to have you guys meet when we get to Indianapolis. He happens to be my neighbor. We do Bible studies together. This guy would happen to be a minister in his church. We do Bible studies together. We eat lunch together. I met his family. Uh, he's just a really cool guy. His name is Stephen Grant. I'm like, oh, that's, that's cool. I'm excited to meet Stephen Grant. Well, what I didn't know initially was that Stephen Grant was actually one of the middle linebackers for the Indianapolis Colts that my uncle happened to live next to. And so the next morning, here comes this very large man at the doorway, pounding. It looked like he had watermelon stuffed in his biceps, just huge. And so he's like, hey, Ken, I'm here to meet Isaiah and Brandon. Let's, let's go. I want to give you a tour of the town. So we hopped in Stephen Grant's sweet ride, and we drove around Indianapolis. He took us to the training facility. We got to play on the field. Uh, we got to go into the locker room. I actually saw Jim Harbaugh's locker room before he was Michigan's coach when he was Indianapolis's quarterback. It was awesome. We got to do some really cool things and got to know him. And he spoke into our life. Again, he was a godly man, so he's, he's seeing two fresh young boys that he can kind of develop a little bit. It was life transforming. It was amazing. I, I love that memory that I have. Well, fast forward about eight or nine years when I'm in high school, Francisville, Indiana, population 500. And so I'm, I'm hearing talk around the high school, that, hey, there's going to be a convocation. We're going to have a motivational speaker come and, and speak some inspirational words to the high school students. So I'm inquiring with the faculty and I'm, I'm asking her, hey, who is this speaker that we're bringing in to, to share with these high school students? And they said, well, it's this guy who used to play for the Colts, his name's Stephen Grant. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I know Stephen Grant. Like, I'm, I'm friends with him. I spent one whole day with this guy. Like, I know, I know him, right? And so I proceeded to tell him the story I just told you guys. We played on the field. I saw Harbaugh's locker room. Like, this was awesome. And then I'm telling all my buddies at, at school, guys, did you know Stephen Grant is coming here to give us a motivational speech? And they're like, who is Stephen Grant? Like, Stephen Grant wasn't a perennial pro bowler. He's not a Hall of Famer. Like, he's not going to have any awards or anything like that. But I was like, he's my boy. Like, I'm his, like, I know him, right? So, and everyone's like, well, who's Stephen Grant? I have no, no, I, I don't know who that is. And so I'm like, oh, man, like, he's going to blow you away, man. Like, he's so motivational. Like, you should see how big his arms are. Guys, listen, he is going to rock our worlds today. I was a huge, huge fan. Like, he changed my life because I had spent some time with him and no one else had. I think Peter can relate a lot to that in this portion of history. Like, everyone else is saying, well, who's this Jesus guy? Like, he's a cool guy, but is he the Messiah for real? Like, can he really change lives? Can he really speak into people like you say he can? So the populace is saying, that's great, but who is it? And Peter's like, this is Christ, the God, he's the Messiah. Like, 
But Peter had spent some time with him, right? So Peter, Peter had known Christ. He ate with Christ. He spent time with Jesus and it absolutely transformed him. He spent time with him and it impacted him. That's why Stephen Grant has such an impact in my life. But Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And it was after this very direct question that Jesus says exactly what's going to happen to him. And in just a short amount of time, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He says, hey guys, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. That's not where the story ends. I'm going to come back to life, but this is my future. I will suffer and I will die. That's what he is telling them. And it's in this context, it is in this moment that Jesus says, hey, if you want to come after me, deny yourself just like I did, just like I'm getting ready to do, pick up your cross, just like I'm getting ready to do, and follow me. Follow. That's in that context that Jesus says, come after me. If this is what you want to do, come after me. Because if you save your life, if you will not deny yourself your pleasures, your desires, your wants, if you are not willing to do that, you will lose your life. But if you lose your life for my sake, ultimately, you are going to find it. This was a bold call to live a crucified life with Christ. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean right now? This means as his disciples, as his disciples, those of us following Christ in the room, we have to be willing to dethrone ourselves as the gods of our own universes and radically live uh, in, in following Christ, denying our own desires. And we carry the cross completely submitting to the authority of Christ. See, those who were crucified in the Roman Empire always had to carry their own crossbeam. This is significant because this was meant to be a public submission to the Roman Empire. This was a big deal because the criminal rebelled against the state and therefore would bear the penalty of punishment, thus the symbol of carrying the crossbeam. The crossbeam was a visible sign that this person was now submitting to the Roman Empire. In their case, it was by force. So fundamentally, when Jesus says, pick up your cross, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, carry your cross. That means show your submission to the authority of Christ. You're saying, I'm willingly putting myself under you. I'm following you in all things. I'm aligning my desires with your desires. See, carrying the cross is not about hardships, and it's not about sickness. It's not about job loss. Those are terrible, tragic things. But when Jesus says, carry your cross, he says, are you willing to put yourself under my authority? Just like I did with my dad when I was seven. Dad, okay, I, I'm with you. I, I understand what's happening. So Jesus says, will you submit to my leadership? Carrying your cross is all about surrendering losing our life for the cause of Christ. So, so we ultimately have our life in him. But Jesus says, if you aren't willing to, to lose your life, you're ultimately not going to find it. Meaning, if unless we die to our self-sitterness and our pride, man, it's going to be really tough going for us. It's going to be really tough treading for us. And have you noticed the times that we tend to be the most unhappy and unhealthy spiritually are the times we're leaning into self-centeredness rather than into self-denial. Haven't you noticed that on a personal level? 
man, life is good when I'm submitting and I'm leading uh, like I should, leading my family well, following Christ well. But when I want to do what Isaiah wants to do, man, life can become a wreck sometimes. Right? We notice that. I'm, I'm unhealthy and, and unhappy when I am not submitting myself to Christ. This wasn't just seven-year-old Isaiah. This is 33-year-old Isaiah as well. I have to know these issues of my heart and, and give them to Christ because at the heart of that is a very dark and evil pride and self-centeredness that has to die. It just has to die. And so my desires have to align with the desires of Christ. And so we must discover in the room today, we must discover what idols we are raising up, dethrone them, and live a new life of following Christ wholeheartedly. And so as we begin thinking about wrapping up our time together, I just want to give us a few points of application to kind of tie all this together. So four ways that we can deny ourselves, carry the cross, and follow Christ. The, the, the first point of application I want to bring is you have to know that you are a disciple of Christ first. Like before you can begin the discipleship journey of self-denial, picking up your cross, and following Christ, you first need to be a disciple. You have to be a disciple first. And for some in the room today, like, yeah, I, I'm a disciple. I've been following Jesus for a long, long time. The reality is there are some in here who probably are saying, I, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I've not given my life to him. I've not believed in him by faith as my Lord and Savior. And I want you to know you can make that choice tonight. You can do it right now. God became a man, lived a sinless, perfect life, died on a cross, came back to life three days later that we might have life in him. It is a gift that he paid for. We receive it by faith. We cannot earn it. We don't deserve it. We cannot work for it in any way. We just believe by faith and receive it by believing in the finished work of Christ. And if you have not received the gift of salvation in Christ alone, I encourage you to accept that gift tonight. So we have to know that we are disciple first. Friends, know that you're following Christ. The second point of application that I would love to give you is know your sinful bents. Know your sinful bents. Jesus says, Deny yourself, right? Deny yourself. So if we're going to live a life of self-denial, we need to know the areas of life that make that difficult to do, right? A great model, I think, that we find in Scripture is Psalm 139, 23, and 24. When David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any grievous, any wicked way in me. Test my thoughts. Know my heart. Lead me in the way everlasting. What a great model prayer that we can lift up to God so he can reveal the sinfulness in our heart that we might say, okay, these are the areas, this is the area that I need to submit to Christ. What a much needed prayer for us to be uh, an understanding and revealed what is in our heart. We have to know our sinful habits and hangups and bent so we can deny those. So we need to know that we're a disciple. We need to know our sinful bents. What are the areas we're having a tough time in? And number three, we have to saturate our hearts with God's word. Saturate your heart with God's word. And I cannot stress enough how critical it is in the process of self-denial, carrying the cross and following him. You have to be in God's word every single day, meditating on it, studying it, living it consuming it as much as you can so you might know your sinful 
areas. I just think about how Paul describes God's word in, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. When he said, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What a mic drop moment for Paul. Boom, done. But he's saying, hey, God's word does powerful things in our life. If we desire to deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow Jesus, we must be saturated in God's word. So we need to know that we're a disciple. We need to know our sinful bents. We need to be saturated in God's word. Then application number four. Application number four. Allow Jesus to be enough for you. Allow Jesus to be enough for you. And when I think about this, I think a little bit further ahead in Luke 9. See, Jesus begins to, to say some more powerful things in verse 57 through 62. I just want to read a couple of verses. But listen to what Jesus says in verses 57 and 58 of Luke chapter 9. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you will go. Now, that sounds awesome, right? Jesus, I will follow you wherever you will go. This guy is motivated and he is excited to follow Jesus. Jesus is drawing crowds. Man, I want to be in his crew. I want to be in his posse. This is what I want my life to be like. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What a powerful verse of scripture. Because there are those who want to follow Jesus, right? Jesus, I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever. Let me follow you. But, but I love what Jesus says. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head in. So Jesus is like, hey, if you want to follow me, that's great. But we're not staying at the Hampton Inn tonight. Right? We're not staying at the Holiday Inn Express. Jesus says, they have places to stay. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So Jesus essentially is saying, hey, if you want to follow me, I'm all you get. I'm all you have. Am I going to be enough? Am I going to be enough for you? And what, a, what a great challenge for us tonight, right? When we think about our walk with Christ, we don't get the promise of a great crowd, a great posse, money in our pockets, and well-known fame and fortune. We don't have the pleasure of that. Jesus says, I am all you get. Am I going to be enough? Am I going to be enough for you? So we have to ask ourselves tonight, is Jesus enough for me? My fourth application for all of us tonight, is Jesus going to be enough for us? He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. I have no place to lay my head. Are we going to be enough? And so Jesus is not a means to an end. He's not a means to, we don't follow Jesus because of his stuff. He is our prize. When we get Jesus, we have everything. We have everything because through Jesus, we have friendship with God, our Heavenly Father. He is the prize. And so we get to the place in our life when we say, Christ, you are enough. I'm going to be completely devoted to you because you are enough. And so I can deny myself because you are enough. And I can pick up my cross because you are enough. And I can follow you because you are enough. But we have to get to a place in our life on a personal level where we say, Jesus is enough for me. So there will be seasons of suffering, right? Christ says, hey, you're going to follow me in my suffering. But Lord, even that's okay. 
because you're enough. The season of pain that you're in, God, you're enough. Jesus, you're enough. We get to the place where we say Jesus is enough. And I pray that we are in a place tonight or we can get to a place tonight where we say, come what may. Come what suffering, come what areas of my life I have to deny, Christ is enough. So what I want to do, and I want to have everyone stand across the room right now. And I just want to give us a, a, a moment to respond tonight. So I ask that every head would bow, every eye would close, just for a moment of privacy and concentration. And I want to give a couple of, uh, a couple of um, response times, if you will. First, for those who, don't, who aren't a disciple of Christ, like, you know what, I, I'm not following Jesus. I want to follow Christ. I want Christ to be enough in my life. I've been turning to this and I've been turning to that only to find emptiness and dissatisfaction, but I'm ready to choose to follow Christ tonight. So if you're here tonight, you're like, I'm willing, I'm ready, I'm, I'm ready to follow Christ. I'm ready to make him enough for me. I just ask you to raise your hand and say, yeah, I want Christ to be enough. God bless that hand. God bless that hand. God bless that hand. God bless that hand. You're saying, I want Jesus to be enough. God bless that hand. God bless that. I see hands all over. God bless you guys. God bless you. I see you. And maybe you've been following Christ for a long time. You're like, yeah, I've been, I've been a follower of Christ for a long time, but I've just been going through the motions. I would be what you would call lukewarm. I've I go to church on Sunday, but that's where my devotion begins and ends. But I want more. I want Christ to be all for me. I want him to be more than enough. I want him to be my everything. If that is you tonight, I would just ask you would lift up your hand and say, yeah, I want Christ to be enough for me. I've been following Jesus a long time. You say, I want Jesus to be enough for me. God bless that hand. God bless that hand. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us. Heavenly Father. I thank you for your word. I thank you that Christ made a way that we could cry out to you, call out to you, pray to you even right now. Lord, for the hands that, uh, that went up, God, to, re, to, to say I'm, I'm ready to start following Christ, Lord, I thank you for those hands. For those that went up and said, yeah, I'm ready for Christ to be enough for me in my walk with him, thank you, Lord, for that. May we come around them disciple them, share scripture with them, lead them to further dependence on you. God, thank you for their courage to lift up those hands. God, thank you for the word that gives us such a, a, a clear call to follow you well. So God, as we end our time together in a time of worship, may we all declare loudly that our wealth is in the cross and that you are enough. In the name of Jesus, amen.